Nicholas Bornels of Capital Inc. I would like to welcome you all to the first uh, panel session of uh, today's conference. And we are honored again and privileged to start uh, the, uh, after the uh, IMO Secretary General opening keynote remarks, we're privileged to have this panel discussion with the heads of the major industry associations uh, to share with us their insight about the industry's direction, challenges, and the industry's preparedness to meet the many challenges uh, the sector is facing today. And I would like to uh, turn over the floor to uh, Mr. Uh, Knut Orbeck Nielsen, uh, the CEO of DNB Maritime, who is going to be the moderator and he will introduce uh, our panelists. Uh, Knut, thank you very much again for being with us for putting all the effort to moderate this uh, tremendous panel. And again, thank you to all of you for being with us. Thank you very much, Nicholas, for that kind introduction and, and welcome, uh, ladies and gentlemen. And it is indeed my sincere pleasure to welcome you all uh, to today's first panel event uh, here at the Capital Inc. Uh, as Nicholas said, my name is Knut Orbeck Nielsen. I'm the CEO of DNV Maritime and I will moderate uh, this panel for you. Now, our excellent panel will today lend their collective expertise and unique insights to the topic of addressing industry challenges, industry preparedness for the road ahead. And um, who better to do this than the leaders from shipping's top industry associations, who I will introduce to you now. Now, they are Ms. Sabrina Chow, president of BIMCO. Welcome, Sabrina. Mr. Dimitris Fafalios, president Intercargo and also president of Fafalio uh, Shipping. Welcome. Uh, Mr. Paolo D'Amico, chairman Intertanko, executive chairman and CEO of D'Amico International Shipping. Welcome, Paolo. Hello. Thank you. Mr. Mark O'Neill, President Intermanager and President and CEO of Columbia Ship Management. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. Good Mr. Afternoon. John uh, Butler, CEO, World Shipping Council. Uh, welcome, John. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, we will be joined in about 20 minutes or so by Mr. Guy Platten, Secretary General of the International Chamber of Shipping. So thank you all for joining us today. I'm sure um, our audience will agree with me when I say how truly great it is to have so many influential voices all under one virtual roof. And I'm very confident that we will cover a great deal in the 70 minutes we have together. Now, uh, let me just... Um, uh, come back to a couple of statements made by um, the Secretary General of the IMO, Mr. Kitak Lim. Now, naturally, he talked about the seafarers. Uh, he also uh, talked about the importance of R&D. He talked about the importance of collaboration and naturally about decarbonization, which we will also discuss in this panel. And one thing he said, which I uh, certainly struck my uh, head uh, as a very powerful statement, is that shipping needs uh, a single window outlook, 
one vision to uh, achieve decarbonization together. And I think this was a, a very powerful statement and certainly one that I found very inspiring. Now, uh, let's um, turn to the topic at hand. The industry associations here today have the mammoth-sized task of guiding and supporting the industry through challenges spanning everything from the whims of geopolitics to the ever-evolving regulatory landscape and unpredictable market forces. They do this independently and in collaboration, and I, along with other views, I'm immensely curious to understand their respective strategies for doing so. So our discussion today will touch on some of the most pressing challenges currently confronting our panel, and it will bring into focus the ongoing crew change crisis, market-based measures, new regulations, the specter of even tighter regulations, and much more. So without further delay, uh, let's get started with our first uh, question. And if I could go to you first, John, um, there has been much debate recently over a proposed global CO2 tax on shipping. And if adopted in future, in what way could or should the proceeds of such a tax benefit global shipping in its pursuit of a low carbon future? John, please go ahead. Uh, thank you, Knut. Um, I think with carbon tax in general, whether we're talking about shipping or any other sector, the best approach is to reinvest the funds uh, collected, you know, through that carbon pricing mechanism back into reducing greenhouse gases. If you, if you siphon those funds off into general revenue, uh, which of course can be used for any purpose, that really undermines the effort to transition to cleaner energy sources and, and technologies really across the whole economy. So as a general matter, I think the right approach is to reinvest those funds in, into decarbonization. But having said that, I think, we, I think we get ahead of ourselves a little bit when we jump straight to the question of, well, what do we do with the money? Um, Whatever you do with the money, a carbon tax is really an economic signal, and, and it's, it's not designed in the first instance to raise money. What it's designed to do is to change behavior by making one behavior, uh, a behavior that you want to, that's undesirable, you make that more expensive so that people do something else. And of course, in this case, what we're trying to move away from is fossil fuels. And what we're trying to meet, move people towards is uh, a new generation of fuels and, and propulsion technologies. Uh, the challenge that we have, particularly with the large transoceanic vessels, is that we don't have today zero carbon fuels and the related technology systems that we can put particularly on large ships. And so until we have those systems, or at least we're an awful lot closer to having those systems. When you apply a carbon tax, all you do is increase cost because people don't have an alternative that they can use to respond to the price signal. And what that means, and you made reference to this in, in the Secretary General's opening remarks, in order to get to the place where we have the fuels and the technologies to respond to a price signal, we have to immediately uh, fund and conduct the research and development effort 
that's necessary to create those fuels and create those associated uh, technologies. Because if we don't have those available at scale, we can't respond to the price signal. And the one thing that the that the IMO has before it today that can uh, really address that R&D gap is the proposal to form the International Maritime Research and Development Board, the, the IMRB. And that would, that would both fund and, and, and direct the necessary research and development. And I think really sort of get us over the hump on the technology. Um, that's something that uh, we certainly are urging IMO member states to get behind and, and move forward over the next two MEPC meetings. Thanks. Great insights, uh, John. So we want change of behavior and uh, not say increase uh, costs. So uh, Paolo, I'm sure that you have your views on this as well. Anything that you would like to add to, to what John said, please? Uh, yes, I mean, I, I do uh, agree with John totally. Uh, if uh, we do not have <clears throat> an alternative with a tax in force, uh, it's just an offsetting scheme and uh, uh, it, it doesn't really uh, affect the uh, GHG reduction. If this, uh, if this tax comes in force in a moment that not necessarily we have zero carbon fuels available, but could even be low carbon fuels available, which is uh, something not too far away because we are, we are testing and working on this thing already. At that point, we can already achieve a reduction on emissions, moving on these low carbon fuels, and in the meantime, finance through the tax, finance the fund, and uh, finance the R&D that John was saying before. So I think at the end of the day, is a matter of timing. And it's a matter of timing, if we are too fast and we go too early and there is Nothing else that we have to do is to pay. Uh, unfortunately, we, we, are, we are not that efficient. If we already start with the uh, low carbon fuels around, and I repeat, it can be not too far away in the future, then I think we are really more efficient and effective. Thank you. Thank you very much, Paolo. Uh, maybe uh, I could come to you, Dimitri, and uh, have your uh, views of this one as well, please. Not, thank you very much, and uh, a warm uh, hello to the audience. Uh, yes, uh, any such tax uh, we would support to be administered uh, by the IMO, um, because um, the IMO has laid out a, a roadmap, and the roadmap uh, 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 has uh, short-term and medium-term and ultimately will have uh, long-term measures. In the short-term measures, uh, there is a finite uh, proposal uh, at the moment uh, give, uh, submitted to the IMO for a, a, a tax based on the uh, bunker uh, fuels consumed. And this would go uh, towards, uh, uh, as Paolo and John said, towards 
funding the research in the technology and in the actual uh, low carbon and zero carbon uh, fuels, which would be applicable, especially to the uh, deep sea sector. Um, I, 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 I stress that the deep sea sector has a completely different set of requirements than uh, short sea shipping or liner shipping or uh, uh, smaller vessels. Here we're talking about huge amounts of energy that need to be uh, uh, provided. So a, a tax which would be uh, a tax which would be uh, perhaps administered by the uh, IMO and then uh, distributed to research um, and perhaps uh, to a certain extent also to help some of the the LDCs and the smaller uh, nations perhaps a, uh, of an amount there um, I think would would get us on in the right direction uh, as uh, uh, John and Paolo uh, very aptly said thank you Thank you, Dimitri. So it seems to be quite a, a um, well-founded support for um, a tax that goes to fund um, um, research in order to find solutions for, for the, the, you know, the challenge at hand. Now, um, this is certainly a challenge that is coming uh, very soon to hit um, uh, everyone in the, in the maritime industry. And uh, I'm thinking about the EEXI and the CII. And um, this is, uh, say, expected to be adopted during uh, this next week's uh, uh, IMO MAPC 76 meeting. And um, uh, we've done, uh, say, a quick... Uh, back over a napkin uh, calculation that about 30,000 vessels might be affected by these new regulations. So the question is, what are the main issues? Um, and if I could come to you, uh, Sabrina, first on this one, please. What are the main issues you foresee in the race to comply with this new regulation, please? Um, thanks, Mitch. Um, EEXI requires um, certification and there is a date established by regulation after which ships required to carry the certification will become affected if they're not ready. So the main challenge is to establish how a ship shall comply. That is um, by power limitation of the main engine, by adding certain efficiency improving features or by derating the main engine, etc. And for each method, a reference speed needs to be identified, which in combination with the other parameters of the EEXI formula brings the ship into compliance with the new regulation. So um, we feel that classification societies together with the technical departments of the ship owners or ship managers will have to work very closely and fast to meet the deadlines. Thank you, Sabrina. And um, for sure, I think I speak on, on, on behalf of all the classification societies that we are naturally uh, here to support and assist. Uh, now, coming back to you, John, um, any additional insights from your end, please? I think Sabrina's covered it pretty well. I mean, this is, it's, it's clear what has to be done. Uh, the uh, different ships will comply in different ways. We do expect 
probably a, a number of vessels to, to look at shaft power reductions as, as a means for compliance because the formula is, is power heavy. Um, but uh, notwithstanding the fact that, that a lot of people have to get certified in a short period of time, I think the industry is prepared to do this, um, to, to get this done. There may be, you know, a handful of, of, of perhaps older vessels that uh, end up uh, being retired early um, because of this. But I think in the main, um, uh, there are pathways to compliance, and I think that's what we'll see. Great, thanks. And um, coming to you, Mark, you see this uh, also from the perspective of the ship managers. And um, any additional views to what you heard so far, please? I'm not sure I see it from any perspective because you're asking me the wrong question, Knut, you devil. Um, but I will answer it. <laughs> I, I will answer it. I think the, the, the key here is um, to avoid this being a race. You know, uh, we saw with IMO 2020 that, that uh, you know, companies uh, rightly or wrongly um, left it or some companies left it to the last minute. I think we've all learned from that. We all ensured compliance there and, and uh, uh, we will all ensure compliance here. And we've taken steps. Um, certainly the, the, the better companies have taken steps to, to ensure compliance. So setting up the internal pr uh, procedures, dealing with the issues that have, uh, have been identified by Sabrina and John, uh, you know, w we are ready and, uh, uh, and we'll be ready. So uh, uh, like with everything, if you make it a race, uh, if you leave it to the last minute, uh, it's going to be difficult to comply. And uh, the key is not to. Yeah, no, I think that's very sensible advice. Uh, and sorry for throwing a curveball at yes, you there, Mark. I, I, hopefully that will be the last one. <laughs> we will see. We will know at the end of the discussion. <laughs> uh, so um, I would like to come back a little bit to, you know, decarbonization and, and the potential for, you know, creating a, a new risk landscape and, uh, you know, with the emergence of new fuels, technologies and operational requirements. Um, what are the biggest safety risks, uh, Mark? And now I will come to you first. Uh, what are the biggest safety risks that you have identified as the industry begins adjusting to the transition towards uh, the IMO's 2030 targets, please? I, I think, um, uh, thanks, Knut. I, I, I think, um, uh, you know, this question has been asked in, in other forum and uh, forum and uh, uh, I think it's common, commonly known, we are going to have uh, a situation in the future where there are very many different fuels available to be used. It's not going to be for the foreseeable future, a dominance of one type of fuel. There's going to be all different types. With those fuel come uh, uh, different requirements as to crew training. There's no doubt that a vessel uh, using LNG uh, requires different training to a, a, a vessel using heavy fuel oil or a vessel using ammonia or or or, or what other uh, fuel sources are there. So I think um, training is going to be key. And uh, uh, we are going to have with that certain difficulties, further logistical difficulties of just ignoring COVID situation for a moment in placing 
properly trained crew on board the appropriate vessels. There's no doubt that this whole COVID crisis has sharpened uh, all of our skill sets in the logistical challenges thrown up by COVID in ensuring that properly qualified crew are on board vessels, particular tankers in, in compliance with uh, uh, obviously the matrix compliance requirements. But you've now got an extra uh, uh, spanner in the works, if you like, that, that not only will crew on board tankers have to be matrix compliant, but they will also have to be uh, experiencing the fuel type on board their vessels. And also, so, so, so training and crew availability and competence will be even more of a challenge going forward. And then, of course, you've got the, um, I guess, uh, the further issue of the safety factors associated with some of these fuel sources that uh, are probably more uh, potentially more dangerous than uh, existing fuels available today. So if you look at LPG, um, if you look at ammonia, etc., different safety considerations in the handling and the dealing with those that will throw up the challenges too. So, so I, I would say, you know, training, uh, crew availability, probably the biggest concern uh, that I have on the on the horizon at the moment, looking at uh, uh, what is happening or the consequences of what is happening in India uh, in as a result of uh, of COVID and the strains on the availability of properly trained crew, uh, you've now got that extra demand, that extra complication, and low, uh, woe betide if another pandemic were to hit us with, with in a world where there are five or six different fuel types available and a very and a strained crewing pool, uh, a pre-existing strained crewing pool. So I think those, those are the issues. Great insights. Thank you, Mark. And uh, maybe Sabrina, I could uh, come to you and, and see if you share Mark's uh, view or if you have additional points that you would like to add uh, into this, please. Thanks, Newt. Yeah, of course, I very much share uh, Mark's point of view. I just I maybe talk a little bit about um, the, the 2030 and, and, and the interim measures. Um, the industry is well underway to meet and exceed the 2030 target um, by a variety of efficiency improving changes. Um, the, as, as we talked in the last question, Diamo is about to adopt some short-term measures anyway, which is the EEXI and the CII. Um, where the EEXI is certainly going to have an impact as it limits the speed on non-EEDI ships can go. Whereas CII is a very different animal, um, the incentive structure for the chosen metric to calculate CII, um, which is the AER, is very ambiguous as you may improve the CII by lowering your emissions. You may, however, also improve your CII by increasing your emissions. That is why BIMCO has remained concerned by this specific way of regulating the industry. CII conflicts with commercial contractual obligations and charterers may not find it beneficial to allow ships under their control improve their CII as required by regulation. So it's definitely something for us to ponder about and, and, and be wary of. Thank you. Thank you for that, Sabrina. Paolo, um, I'm curious to hear your take on this, please. So, <clears throat> thank you. No, first of all, I totally agree with what Mark said. Training and crew will be uh, will be the big challenge. Will be the big challenge. They, they, they are ready the big challenge today, and this, of course, is coming on top of everything else. But if there is one thing is worrying me 
more. <coughs> and is on the short term measures. And uh, I am quite worried that a ship in way of keeping his emission down has to operate at a power level, which is either at or below security margin. And I think that can happen and then can put some danger to the crew itself because many of the ship will operate at minimum possible. There are a lot of older ships. And, and uh, uh, okay, somebody can say this is a good reason to scrap them, but uh, probably is not going to happen in five minutes. So what is going to happen there? And who is going to be first? The emission or the safety of a crew? Thank you. Now that's a really interesting point. I'm, I'm just curious to know if any of the other panelists um, might have a, you know, a view on that uh, just before we proceed, because I think that's really, you know, an interesting uh, discussion whether, you know, a ship will have so much engine power limitation that it might actually uh, put the vessel and the crew in, in um, you know, concern for its safety. Any other takers on that? Any sort of views from the other panelists? Yeah, Dimitri, please go ahead. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Knut. And I think uh, uh, Paolo and Sabrina made some very uh, uh, important points. This question of the minimum power, uh, it has been brought up at IMO, but I, I do believe that much more work uh, is needed. Uh, unfortunately, a ship is not like an automobile where we can drive at five and 10 miles an hour and then drive at uh, 30 and 40 or whatever it is. Uh, there are minimum considerations where the ship cannot steer uh, and therefore there is a safety uh, issue. And um, I think that the industry needs to work together with IACS uh, which I know uh, that you support very much. And I know that you have come out and, and talked a lot about this issue of safety. Yes, we must decarbonize. Uh, yes, we must go forward, but not at the expense of uh, the safety of the seafarers and the vessels. Um, uh, this is not a, uh, let's say, a one-way street. Uh, uh, we have to find this balance between decarbonization and safety. And uh, we, as you know, in, in, we are operating in the lower power sect, uh, sector of the industry because our vessels are, are traditionally low powered. So if we drop the power even more, uh, then uh, we, we start having uh, safety issues. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dimitri. Um, yeah, so that is certainly one uh, one area to watch uh, going forward. Um, but certainly, it doesn't take the say attention or the pressure away from the decarbonization uh, agenda and the topic. And if I could go to the next question, so um, we've heard, and Paolo, maybe I could come to you with this one first. So we've heard that the U.S. administration is putting pressure on the IMO to achieve. 
zero emissions by 2050. And they are not the only geopolitical giant challenging the status quo. And uh, what actions can ship owners take now to future-proof their fleets against the possibility or more stringent regulations in the future. Future, Paolo, please. Already, if we take uh, since 2008, this is data coming from Intertaco and from our members. Since 2008 to today, we already considerably cut down CO2 emission. And this, we didn't do it with a big uh, new building program. We did it basically with uh, operational uh, operational behavior. We improve our operation and things that more and more can, can happen in the future on this, on, uh, on this side. Now, I think that by, by 2030, the tanker fleet, and of course I'm talking only by, because of the tanker fleet, but the tanker fleet will be a different, a completely different thing uh, instead of the uh, pre-EEDI uh, fleet. The fleet afterwards will be another thing. So I, th I think we are on the way to meet all our targets. Of course, the last one, the 2051, is the tough one. And uh, there we need, and we always knew that, we need the big jump, and we need that famous RD, RD helping us with the new fuel and probably even a new engine. Great insights, Paolo. Thank you very much. And um, Dimitri, I'm, I'm coming to you next now, please, uh, to have your views. Thank you. Thank you, Knut. Uh, and Paolo is uh, totally right. Uh, I'm going to concentrate a little bit more at the ship level, which, of course, the ship uh, makes up the fleet. And uh, future-proofing at this time is difficult and, and very much sectoral. So different, difficult because ship designs and new engine designs and green fuel availability and fuel distribution networks at the very, very early stage currently. And each shipping sector can think about the future in different ways. So for instance, ferries can use a lot of sh more sh shore power more extensively than other ship types. Vessels on a liner or in a regular or short sea trade can optimize better than deep sea tramp vessels, such as tankers and bulk carriers, where there are no fixed routes. Uh, vessels on long-term charter can act differently to those on short-term business. But, and this is a, a, an issue which I know is close to your heart, safety of the new fuels is paramount. And I absolutely uh, stress this. And, uh, and uh, as I said earlier, IMO, IACS, and the other uh, regulatory bodies have not yet fully developed safety criteria for many of the future fuels. And as an example, for instance, in ammonia, uh, is, it, which is highly toxic, and uh, recently, unfortunately, one person, uh, one seafarer died and three are critical from ingesting ammonia on an LPG carrier. So we, we future-proofing is a wonderful word, but we have to actually put safety and reality ahead of the uh, dream. Uh, energy density is really important uh, for several ship types and sectors. I mean, uh, Eastern Australia to Northern Europe is a 40 plus uh, day voyage on a bulk carrier. 
Um, very few of the zero carbon fuels at the moment could provide this kind of uh, range. And this will necessitate the vessel making uh, maybe, uh, maybe one or two bunkering stops. And this will totally change the economics of the trade and lower the efficiency of the shipping model and also of the logistics uh, chain. Uh, for a Trump uh, trading bulker, a good start is always to have a, an EDI phase three vessel uh, because that's a very efficient uh, vessel. And probably initially biofuels, uh, and I'm not talking about biofuels which are crops, but I'm talking about third generation biofuels could be used. And, um, and maybe uh, a, a gas ready initial design might help for ammonia or hydrogen or, or green LNG. Um, another pathway, uh, talking about future proofing, is using uh, green methanol. Uh, from CO2 capture. And another, yet another pathway might be carbon capture and storage. But at the moment, this is a very energy hungry uh, process. And it's really too early uh, to talk about it's, it's at a very early development stage. Thank you. Thank you for, for spanning out all the different, to say, alternatives that are, are currently being looked at. And um, I think it comes nicely back to, to what we discussed a bit earlier, that uh, what we really need um, are solutions. And uh, as of now, there are quite, uh, say, limited uh, solutions that are practical for the deep sea and, and the bigger uh, vessel types. Um, I would like to, to now focus a little bit on the upcoming um, UN COP26 meeting. And I know that um, many of you will be, say, looking to that with, uh, with interest. Now, uh, the, the COP26 meeting will convene in November of this year. And uh, one aspect of the discussion will be to scrutinize the progress of shipping's decarbonization journey thus far. On behalf of your organizations, what, what is the main message that you would like to send to the decision makers of this uh, pivotal meeting? And uh, sorry to keep you busy, Dimitri, but I, I would like to come back to you again, please. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you, Knut. And uh, I, I think that we have to, uh, we have to, uh, uh, I think reflect also what our, some of the previous speakers, Paolo mentioned it, and I believe, and is that the fourth greenhouse gas uh, study has showed that uh, has shown that uh, shipping is doing very well. Uh, not that it cannot improve; it can improve and it must improve. But um, one of the messages are that, and I'm, I'm talking about our sector, which is dry bulk shipping, which is currently one of the most efficient greenhouse gas efficient uh, uh, transport modes. Uh, we want to decarbonize. If we could decarbonize yesterday, we, we would, but we cannot do so alone. And regulating the shipping industry or the ship owner alone uh, shows, I would say, a misunderstanding of our industry. Um, it will not be effective unless we have the charterers with us, the fuel suppliers, ports, and the terminals. Um, and whether they can be somehow directly regulated and simultaneously regulated so that we're all um, uh, moving in the, in the same direction at the same speed. I think that that's a, a message that we would like to, to uh, that we really want to decarbonize, but we have to decarbonize together with the other stakeholders in our industry. Uh, I think at the moment, there's a little bit too much concentration 
on just uh, uh, regulating the shipper and the ship. Um, uh, uh, if we, if we, if, there's also then there's the the market dynamic. Um, if an owner provided an LNG powered bulk carrier today for spot business, very few charters would accept it, as it was, won't give them the worldwide trading ability they need today. LNG is not available at all ports and routes served by the dry bulk trade, which is possibly one of the world's most diverse trades. Um, an LNG powered bulker today is about 30% more expensive to build would carry less cargo as the fuel containment system is heavier and then the current designs would have a shorter range than a conventional bulker and would need more expensive fuel. So why would many charters use it? And if charters cannot use it, then why build the ship at all? So, um, and then again, if we look at the other side, in the case of long-term business, you have a five or 10 or 15 year charter, then the LNG powered bulker may make more sense. But what happens at the end of the charter? Does that vessel become remain competitive or uh, is it a financial millstone around the owner's neck? So these things have to be uh, considered uh, by uh, the regulators to make, uh, to make good regulation. Um, we have also the question that large bulk carriers can support different greenhouse gas reduction technologies to smaller vessels. Um, and that means that that just shows that within one shipping center sh sector, uh, ship size and trade can make a huge uh, difference to the decarbonization uh, outcome. Um, and finally, our sector is made up uh, of some large companies, but perhaps hundreds or thousands small shipping companies or SMEs, small and medium enterprises. And this keeps our sector efficient. Um, and regulations should not. Uh, strangle the one or two ship company because if the one or two ship company is the one that ultimately became the 50 or 100 ship company. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dimitri. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's, uh, it's good to welcome uh, Mr. Guy Platten, the Secretary General of the International uh, Chamber of Shipping uh, uh, to the panel. Welcome, Guy. Uh, it's good Thank to you see you. Much. Thank you. I'm sorry I joined a little late. Thank you. No, no, we know that you had some very busy engagements already. So we'll be basically now discussing what are the sort of main uh, message that you'd like to send to the decision makers at the UN COP26 meeting in uh, November of this year. And we just heard from Dimitri. Uh, that um, um, the shipping industry is quite a fragmented one and uh, it shouldn't be sort of scrutinized on its own and uh, it has to go along with a lot of other, uh, say, efforts with uh, other industry sectors, etc. I cannot give a, a precise description of everything that you said, Dimitri, but maybe this can serve as an entry point for your comments. Please go ahead. Thank you. I'll, I'll be brief and I appreciate the, the time. I think COP26 is going to be uh, very important for our industry as well. I think there's going to be increased focus on it. In fact, we're, we're holding an event at COP26 as well to try and showcase that shipping is ready to engage in the decarbonisation debate in a proactive manner. But in order for us to decarbonise, we're going to need to get the support of governments and others and to send clear political signals to our industry as well and support and I was, you know, touched on some of the stuff that Dimitri was just saying before me as well. That's, that's really important in terms of regulation, in terms of support, in terms of research and development that we need. We, we have put forward a proactive proposal through governments. Now, they, they sponsored it, Japan and others, for a research and development fund um, so that we can 
build the technology at scale to enable the decarbonisation to take place. So COP26 is going to be a massively increased focus on shipping, I have no doubt. And, and that's something we should embrace and to show the positive image of what shipping can actually do as we race to, to, to decarbonise. That's a very positive and, um, say, forward-leaning approach, Guy. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. Um, John, if I could uh, come to you and, and hear your views. You're representing some of the, say, the bigger uh, vessels and, and the container uh, vessels in particular, maybe. So what's your views on this, please? Um, I think two things, really, for the, for the conference of the parties and... And the first one, I think, reflects or echoes a point that um, the IMO Secretary General made earlier. I think the, the most important, the single most important message to the COP and coming out of the COP is that uh, for shipping, IMO has to be the home of the solutions. We, we cannot solve this problem if we have a balkanized regulatory world where regional and national governments start competing with their different regulations, uh, that always comes with commercial disruption, trade disruption, and it frankly saps the energy uh, and the will of the IMO member countries to get together and do the job right at the IMO. So that's number one. We have to do this at the IMO or frankly, if we fail to do it at the IMO, I think it's going to be very difficult to do it at all. So that's critical. And that requires a clear international uh, signal from, from the member states. I think the second thing that's critical, and this is reflected in, in something that others have said, as important as it, is, as it is for the IMO to be the focus, we also need coming from the IMO really clear uh, regulatory and policy signals. And we need to set those signals and we need to leave them in place long enough that industry can react properly to those signals. We've had a little bit of a history of moving targets, things changing, and it's critical, particularly as we go into the next phase of this, that we have a clear idea of where we're trying to go, what the timelines are. At the end of the day, we need both innovation and investment. And neither innovation nor investment responds well to uncertainty. If you don't know that there's going to be a payoff for your investment, you never make it. If you don't know what problem you're trying to solve from a technical standpoint, it's very difficult to do the research and development and engineering work to put that into place. Dimitri made some good points a moment ago about well, how do you get enough certainty to invest in a particular fuel, for example? And that's, that's critical. And the fact of the matter is, while I, I do agree with Dimitri that we need all these pieces to come together, fuel suppliers, you know, uh, equipment manufacturers, there, there are all sorts of parts that have to come into place. The fact of the matter is the IMO is going to regulate the vessel. And that makes it all the more difficult, all the more challenging to come up with regulations and, and economic policies that send the right signal to the whole ecosystem. So that's the challenge. But if we start doing it in you know, three, four or five different places, uh, we're lost.
Thank you, John. And um, I, I think we've seen, you know, the emergence of, of that happening, actually, you know, with, within uh, Europe, the EU is, uh, is very forward leaning. Um, I mean, it's not unlikely that we will see something happening in China. Uh, the US with the new administration has been very forward leaning. So, uh, so the, the, there is certainly a lot of pressure on the IMO. And I, I would like to uh, come back to that a little bit later on uh, in our discussion. Um, but could I now take a little bit of a, a sidestep from the decarbonization topic as, as uh, we also have a, a guy joining us. And, um, and uh, you know, the Secretary General uh, also talked about us being in the pandemic still with the with the seafarer challenges. So uh, um, still, we're uh, you know more than a year since the outbreak of the pandemic. Two thirds of the IMO member states still have not designated seafarers with the key worker status that they need um, and rightly deserve. And I, I think, if my numbers are correct, this is quite uh, appalling. And um, uh, mean, meanwhile, travel curbs and restrictions continue to disrupt the work and the well-being of the seafarers. And um, I know that all of you have been, you know, working day and night to try and influence and resolve this issue. And uh, the question is really, what more can the industry do and what must governments now do to ensure that working you know, at sea remains an attractive vocation for future generations. I mean, just, you know, Mark, you just made the point earlier on that, you know, uh, this, the, having the right uh, seafarers with the right competence is, is vital for safety. So Guy, maybe I can turn to you uh, first on this one, please. Yeah, thank you. I think the first point is the crew change crisis hasn't gone away. I think ship owners and ship managers and, and Mark's company, one of them as well, have done extraordinary efforts to, in order to facilitate them um, through almost impossible uh, challenges in order to make it happen. So I think credit where credit's due. And, but the numbers are starting to go up again in terms of people over the time, you know, despite all of that. We've seen sort of bad travel bans on Indian seafarers being able to join ships because of variants coming in. We see other variants going out. And I think the seafarers very much been the collateral damage during this pandemic we you know we've done all we can to lobby and, and will continue to do so but ultimately what we see is countries turning inwardly when it becomes the public health crisis and, and seafarers for, for for whatever reason seem to be be, be forgotten with some exceptions there are a number of countries who, who have, have, have lived through the values all the way through and now of course we've got the whole issue of vaccinations um, you know, we, we need to get our seafarers prioritised for vaccinations if we're going to find a, a long-term solution way out of this. Now, it's uh, obviously that in India, there's still a, quite a low vaccine take-up rate. They, although they prioritise seafarers, there's, there's still a way to go, but we know that some people have managed to get their workforce, the vaccines as well. Philippines, likewise, it's quite a slow pace. Um, it is good to see, though, some, some chinks of light, perhaps in the United States, where some 52 ports now are offering vaccines for overseas seafarers. And we know that many thousands have been vaccinated in that way. We're seeing a little bit of, uh, of light as well in the Netherlands where they're uh, opening up the vaccination program to overseas seafarers on Dutch flagged or Dutch managed ships. We see the same in Belgium. And what we want is that, um, that momentum to build now. We've got 1.7 million seafarers. It, it, it's, it's 
it's so important that we get them, them vaccinated. And we're certainly focusing on lobbying on, on that. We're working with the Cyprus government as, as well now, because they've shown a willingness to take a leadership role here. But we try to source vaccines as an industry ourselves, but you have to do it through governments. You need to have them on side and, and working with you to do that. So there's, there's, a, there's still a long way to go. And I, and I think I wasn't party to the, the things, but there's definitely a fear now that we're going to have a skill shortage going forward. Because, you know, why would you want to have a, a go to sea if you don't know when you're going to come home? And I think that's something which we are seeing some evidence that people are reluctant to, to join ships. And that's something that we have to tackle as an industry as well. Um, you know, I'm an ex-seafarer. It's been a very rewarding career for me. But we need to have that next generation having the confidence to work in our sector again. Thank you very much, uh, Guy, for, for bringing that to the fore again. And um, coming to you, Mark, I mean, you're in, you're in deeply involved in this as well. Could we have your views, please? Well, I think if, if, if we all look at who is represented here, um, there's about five different organizations, each speaking with a different voice, all or some channeling those voices uh, collectively or individually through to the IMO. The IMO is then uh, hang, handcuffed or kneecapped or hamstrung, whatever the wording, the appropriate word is, uh, because it has to comply with the various UN regulations. And one wonders why um, the poor old seafarer is ignored. You know, the industry has to speak with one voice, see with one vision. You talked about uh, the IMO Secretary General's uh, encouragement to speak with one vision, intermanager or, or see with one vision. Uh, intermanager, the managers employ directly or indirectly over 95% of uh, the world's seafarers, and yet intermanager is not party to the round table of discussions that take place. Uh, and, and one wonders why we, we, we can't act in a, in a coordinated way. I think the industry really has to get a, a grip of itself and uh, come together in issues like this. I think we have got better uh, as a result of COVID, but we simply lag behind uh, the rest or other industry sectors in our human resource management. We don't talk about human resource management. We see, we still unfortunately too often see uh, crew and employees, and let's not forget the hardworking employees ashore, as uh, expenses on our profit and loss and not as assets on our balance sheet. And human resource management has taken such huge steps in other sectors. And unfortunately, shipping has uh, been left behind. And I probably see it better than most because I come from outside of, of shipping, albeit uh, 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 various law firms, where you see just the, 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 the standing of human resource and the importance of human resource to industry. So I think that's a major challenge for our industry, not just for seafarers. It's not just seafarers, it is also the staff ashore. The second thing is if we talked with one voice, we might get our PR a little bit better. I mean, nobody, uh, we take BIMCO's fantastic video and I have to congratulate them. I, I, I believe there's a second one out, but who actually saw that apart from middle to senior ranking executives within shipping organizations? Why wasn't it out there on national news? Why wasn't it promulgated in through every possible media channel so that we educate the public about the rewards of the shipping industry as a whole, not just seafarers, but ashore, uh, in finance, in law, uh, in, in broking, etc. There is nothing 
And, you know, we really, all of us have to come together and uh, pool our resources and attack the PR, put out the PR to the wider world out there so that our kids, when, we, when, when they're sitting around or when I'm sitting around a dinner table, somebody around that dinner table has the vaguest idea about the shipping industry. The only time they ever know about the shipping industry or see is when unfortunately a ship gets stuck in the Suez Canal and then suddenly it comes on everybody's radar. So I think PR is uh, crucially, um, uh, crucially important. And then I think finally, communication and identification. You know, I think we have as an industry got much, much better with communicating and uh, identifying with our seafarers on board. And we all feel generally genuinely extremely sorry for the for the hardships that they're undergoing and the hardships of staff ashore in our in our crewing departments and technical departments but it's this communication identification like like with all things in business communication is often the uh, the solution so i think we are getting better at that technology is certainly helping us but communication identification with the seafarers lot in life uh, certainly will go a long way to uh, uh, causing us to focus on the issues and improving that lot uh, for, for the for the general good. Thank you, Mark. HR and communication. Sabrina, what's your take on this, please? Thanks, Newt. Um, I very much agree with what the other speakers have said um, in, in terms of sort of like addressing, having governments recognize the um, importance um, that seafarers and our industry play in in, in, in world trade. I think it's very important. Um, and, and that is only by recognizing that, you know, seafarers are very important in terms of keeping world trade flowing, um, that they would want to help to keep that going. Um, so whether key, key worker status or not, I think that is the key um, to achieve what we need to achieve. In since the beginning of the pandemic, you know, we within Vimpo has come up with numerous options into how we can help with crew change. You know, we have the crew change clause, et cetera. And it is very difficult, it's frustrating sometimes to have these adopted <laughs> into our charter parties. So, you know, I couldn't agree more when um, the previous speaker said that we have to work together and it's more than just ship owners. And, you know, ship owners actually, we very much value our, our seafarers and they're more than just, you know, expenses you know we we try our utmost to make sure that they are taken care of um but the issues here are so complex and we have reached out to associations outside of the maritime industry to see you know whether they have solutions for example we look into aviation whether there are some sort of help possible that they're developing that we can tag on to to make sure that you will be part of that solution when that opens up but unfortunately i think the whole world is just still going around in circle and you know um mark touched on the, the the film that we just launched and i very much you know do a bit of advertising here if you allow me that we have just recently launched a short film titled um seafarers deserve support and you can search it on youtube we have I just, checked, I just checked because of Mark's comment that no one from the industry, outside of our industry is looking. So I'm hoping with all of um, this, you know, the, the, everyone's on the panel today and um, whoever's logging in to listen to this panel will help us to spread the word um, that to, to, to make sure that the awareness is out there about the important, the crucial role that seafarers play in society and calling on governments to step up. You know, um, it's only by, you know, reaching the mass and people beyond our industry that this 
um, issue will have a chance of getting resolved um, because we alone as an industry will not able to do that. Thank you. Sabrina, get that video on breakfast TV, though. Get it to the outside world, not just to the uh, shipping industry. Absolutely. We are reaching out to some very big NGOs outside of shipping to, to hope that they will put it on their website as well. Yeah, congratulations on, on that film. It certainly is a very good um, uh, piece of information and communication. So uh, the more we can spread it, the better it is. Um, I would like to, you know, we, we've, we, we do have some listeners actually to this panel discussion and I, I just received quite an interesting uh, question, which is related to the, the crew uh, change uh, challenge. And um, it goes around the theme uh, that um, although there are vaccinations being made to seafarers, uh, we still have the problem that was alluded to earlier that uh, governments tend to be inward looking and only recognize you know, vaccinations being carried out under their own control and, and with their own sort of certificates in place. And how, how can we also deal with this issue? It's, a, you know, it's truly an international uh, issue for the seafarers. And maybe, Guy, you have some thoughts on this to, to kick us off, please? I think what can be frustrating is trying to get that international consensus and what is, we think on the face of it, quite a simple problem. How do you find an internationally recognised certificate which people will be able to use to travel? And that seems to be, um, uh, for some reason I generally don't understand, more problematic than it, than it first appears. We've been doing work with the World Health Organisation and others to get some sort of uh, vaccine passport produced. There is work underway to, to do all these things through various different forum, World Economic Forum are, are, are working hard on this, not just for our sector, but also for the aviation sector and others as well. But it is gonna be needed, absolutely gonna be needed to, to, to go forward if we're going to uh, and allow travel to take place. And the basis of it has to be WHO approved vaccines. And that's, that's what we'll need in order to, to facilitate the travel. But at the moment, countries as, as seem to be sort of focusing inwardly on what they're going to produce rather than, than focusing outwardly on what we can do collaboratively to come up with one simple certificate which will allow everyone, not just seafarers, to, to travel um, going forward. Can I just add here, Knut, as well, that I, I don't think we want to become vaccine obsessed. You know, we had a vessel call into the US recently where none of the crew on board took the option of having the vaccine. Now, we're only allowed to encourage crew to take the vaccine, but having a vaccine is a choice. Uh, it's a choice on all of us, uh, not, ju not, just, uh, not just crew. And it's a fact, when you look at companies that are uh, offered vaccines, now you look at vessels that are offered vaccine, probably at best, just over 50% of people will take the vaccine. And, and as an industry, I don't think we're, look we're doing enough, certainly from a crewing perspective, to look at, uh, post-COVID or as, as COVID, as we come out of this pandemic, and let's face it, it will be a long COVID exit, how, how the world will look for those people who don't have vaccines. We can't take 50% out of our crewing pool of 1.7 million and operate a world fleet. We can't do that. So we better start thinking about steps that we take for those, those crew members who quite rightly and quite justifiably decide not to have the vaccine. And, and that's, I think, all of this talk about certification, et cetera, we will still have to have 
quarantine hotels. We will still have to have PCR testing. We will still have to have hygiene. We will still have to have all of these safety measures for a long period of time for those people who quite justifiably decide not to take. Although we encourage, we recommend, of course, we believe that having the vaccine is the only sensible way uh, out of this. And I think just on that, it's about education as well of our, of our seafarers. Well, you've got some resources which have, have been widely circulated to, to seafarers now explaining in, in just neutral terms what they what vaccines are all about and how they work. But it is about education, about persuading people to take up the vaccine. But I do sense that but a, sure, uh, uh, a sure guy, people are being people are being very well educated. You will still see at best two thirds of people taking this vaccine. And if we apply that figure to our crewing pool, you know, we're going to have three or four hundred thousand seafarers who will never be vaccinated. And, and how do we how do we operate as an industry? That's that's with all the education and the work. We bombard our seafarers with with education and encourage them to take the vaccine, recommend them to take the vaccine. We can't force them to take the vaccine. But, but don't, that, some, don't some of your seafarers have to have inoculations anyway to travel? I mean, certainly if you go to some place in the world, you need to have that in order to do so. So is this any different in the long term not now but in the long term is it not going to be a it's, a, it's a very it's a very shifting sand dangerous situation you know you 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 uh I, I think many of the the bodies on this panel have put out guidance as to the legal obligations of the employer vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the employee and what the, the employer is entitled to do and it's a fact you can encourage you can't force and uh, this is not an inoculation. Uh, this is something. Uh, this is something different. And and uh, as I said, I don't have the answer. It's just that we need to start addressing this because we still have to operate and operate efficiently with all of these regulations coming in. And as we exit what will be a long COVID tail, uh, undoubtedly, vaccine is not the, the 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 full solution. Unfortunately, we have to keep in mind that there are people that will not be vaccinated. I think that's that's your point, Mark. So we'll for sure keep that in mind. Um, now, I would like to again uh, come a little back to uh, the topic of decarbonization and, and what we discussed a little bit earlier. So, um, I mean, all, all of you, um, the bodies that you represent, uh, you are stellar examples of what the industry can achieve when it collaborates. And, and when it comes to decarbonization, each of you will have registered the growing ambitions of the global powers like we talked about earlier, like the US, China, EU, to mention a few. And uh, yet we also touched upon uh, that international collaboration on regulation must take place at the IMO. I think that was a view that uh, all of you expressed. Um, and in your estimation, uh, if I could ask the question now to, to everyone, what are the chances that the IMO timeline as we know it today will come into play leading to a more aggressive decarbonization trajectory for the industry. And maybe I could start off with you, Paolo, and then uh, have your views, John, and then we just go around the, the virtual table, as it were. Paolo, any, any reflections from your side on this, please? Look, the only thing really comes to my mind, and if I can, I can pray uh, the powers who are on, on top of this, of our life, basically, because this is a, a huge piece of it. 
is of not coming up with rules which are just mathematic per percentage in a certain period of time. And not coming and just saying, we have to cut this or cut that by 40%, 50% or 30% within three years, 10 years or 50 years. Because uh, our goal is to go to emission zero. And we know that and we will get there. But when they start saying that and saying that, thinking that is enough to say a, percent, a percentage number and the problem is solved is, is not absolutely the case. The, the problem on the back of it has a technological problem. There are priorities that have to be, to be put in place. So the, the big class, let's say, with a political world, could be that, could be, it's been already that, and I hope it's not going any further. Thanks, Paolo. Thanks for sharing that. John, any, any views from your side, please? Well, I agree actually with a lot of what, what Paolo said, and I, I, I probably won't be very popular for saying this, but, but it's my belief that you know, in practice, this bidding war that we have of who can be the most ambitious has probably pretty well run its course in terms of being productive. Um, as Paulo says, we've determined the, the direction of travel and the destination is, is, is to decarbonize, right? So we all know that. And of course it does matter, the time matters quite a bit, but once you've made the decision to decarbonize, what you really have to think about is, okay, how do we get there? It's very easy to, to one up the previous nation or the previous company that, that made a, uh, a target, but we have to do the hard work of how do we get there? And we've talked a lot today about the research and development piece of that. That's first, we have to do that because to get to zero, we need different fuels and we need different technology solutions to use those fuels and to use them safely. So the first thing really is, is that we have to do the R&D and we have to do it now because that's the building block. And so again, I come back to encouraging all IMO member states to, to support and move forward with the IMRB proposal, uh, the research and development proposal that's on the table and ready to go at the IMO. But in addition to that, we then have to put in place predictable regulations, uh, carbon pricing, et cetera, so that we know how we're going to implement once we have those fuels. And unless you have a, a set of regulations and, and policy statements that are fixed for a reasonably long period of time, you are not going to get the necessary investment to take those new, uh, those new technologies forward. So I guess to summarize, it's really, let's move past the bidding war on targets. Let's do the R&D and stop talking about it. And then let's put the right policy measures in place and stick with them for the long haul so we, so we get the, the investment, the innovation. Thanks. Very clear and, and great messages, uh, John. Um, 
We just uh, received quite a demand to, to watch your video before we sort of end this uh, session, Sabrina. So maybe that's a good opportunity to, to start spreading the word and showing it here. So that means we will have to sort of uh, cut this discussion short by a couple of minutes. But before we do, let's, let's just hear it quickly from the other panelists uh, on this last question. And maybe I could start with you then, Sabrina, please. Thanks, Knut. Um, again, you know, agree with the previous speaker said um, that you know this the, the the change that we need, you know, to to build and operate decarbonized ships is not driven by more aggressive targets. It is driven by solutions and actual change in the industry. So, because you know the shipping industry, as we have spent the last one hour talking about, is already committed to decarbonize. We are in solution mode already, whereas you know changing targets just set to confuse everyone. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you. Um, yeah, let's uh, go to you, Dimitri. Any any quick words on this, please? Yeah, thank you, Claude. Uh, I think we must have a lot of faith in the IMO roadmap. Uh, the IMO timeline has been uh, vigorously developed uh, to a high level of detail, and um, uh, the industry will deliver, and it will over-deliver. Uh, we will meet our targets. In fact, we will we will be ahead of them. However, it's something which I said earlier, we must not do this at the expense of safety, safety of the seafarer and safety of the vessel. But uh, let, us, let us believe in the IMO. Uh, it, it, it doesn't only talk about, as Paolo says, percentages and this and that. There's been a lot of, of detailed work and, and rigorous work which has been done. So uh, we, will, we, will meet our, uh, we will meet and exceed uh, our targets. Thank you. Thank you. Um, time is really running out fast. So uh, if I could just uh, hear it quickly from you, Mark, and, and then from you uh, guys, very, and then we play the video. Uh, my, my, my comments are, or my, my view is that uh, shareholders dictate strategy and policy and that's shareholders within companies and that's voters in countries. I don't believe for one moment that the timelines of be they 2030 or be they 2050 will be kept to for the self-same reason that Dimitri just said, I think they'll be brought forward. And I think there is such an appetite coming out of COVID for anything to do with environmental sustainability, uh, recycling green, that I think public opinion shareholders will force the IMO and will force much higher organizations than the IMO to accelerate those timelines. I think to think that we go to decarbonization by 2050 is just ridiculous. It will be far, far earlier than that because the Greta Thunbergs of this world will simply quite rightly arguably not allow it. So I think we need to continue to be flexible and, and need to uh, uh, look at those timelines coming being shortened as opposed to querying whether we're going to meet them. Uh, I think the environmental uh, lobby and sustainability lobby has picked up such a head of steam. It is the way to differentiate, it's the way out of this crisis. And uh, I think we will see timelines shortened. Thank you. Famous last words, Guy, please go ahead. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think my uh, esteemed panel said everything I was going to say, really. We need political certainty, we need regulatory certainty to allow investment decisions to take place. And uh, we, we are in a solution mode, as, as Sabrina has said, and we will deliver. 
Thank you very much uh, to all of you for uh, a very interesting and good exchange. And uh, Nicholas, I, I think uh, you and the audience would uh, benefit from watching the, the video. So um, with that, I would just like to thank all of the panelists for uh, great participation, sharing your insights and reflections. It's been uh, a pleasure moderating you and uh, I will hand it back to you, Nicholas. Thank you very much. Well, thank you to all of you for a tremendously insightful discussion. Knut, thank you for all the work you have put uh, into this. And thank you to all of you. I mean, tremendously impactful and uh, very rich content. Thank you, authoritative content. And without any more delay, let's play the video. And Sabrina, obviously, we will be delighted, um, Capital Link, to do everything we can to support this and distribute it further. So uh, with great pleasure. So let's uh, have the video. We've talked about ships and how they make the world go. But what about us, the seafarers, behind cargo? We are an industry that's proud from stern to bow, captains to ratings. And we are asking for governments around the world to take responsibility because we have the right to be safe, to go home after work, to stay protected, not be forgotten about or neglected. Look closely at the job we love to do understand what it means to be part of a crew and what life at sea really means. So think about this, that today, while you sit in your office or spend time at home, there are one million of us on 60,000 ships. When eyes turned to our industry and saw that trade stopped, they saw the news, the 220,000 tons of steel, but what they didn't see are the people that keep it all together. The 1.7 million of us, the bolts and the screws, the talented crews, the passion, the piracy, the underlying threat, the unique skill set, the relentless shifts and hours, the loved ones of ours, but neither do we, for months on end, pause and comprehend the conditions we face, the risk and unpredictability of this immense open space. Yet we wouldn't trade it for anything. So we ask for support. As we work to connect the world, to enable your everyday, the way you live, the way you play. Life on demand, a seamless flow. We are the people on board the ships that make the world go. It's our responsibility to facilitate your lives. It's the government's turn to look after ours. It's time for this sea that brings us so much to bring us all together. As we ask you to recognize the role we play, not only in world trade, but the world. There's more to our industry than the ships you see. Governments need to take action to eradicate piracy and allow us to change crew so that we can keep the world supplied and get home safely. We are key workers too. We hope for a future of care, treatment that's fair. So step up and imagine if everything we did stopped and wasn't there. What, uh, what a great way to end uh, this panel. Thank you very, very much to everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Great video. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Great.